Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 168 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a member of one of the most elite clubs in the world, that of people who host a late-night talk show for one of the big three broadcast networks, the very funny host for the past 15 years of ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live, as well as the host of the 2017 Academy Awards ceremony that aired on the network, Jimmy Kimmel. Kimmel, who will turn 50 this year, has been a fixture on television for the past 20 years, following many years before that in radio. He made his name on several Comedy Central offerings around the turn of the century, serving as Ben Stein's sidekick on the game show Win Ben Stein's Money from 1997 through 2000, co-creating and co-hosting the sketch comedy program The Man Show from 1999 through 2003, and co-creating and voicing many of the most memorable characters on Crank Yankers from 2002 through 2007. His life changed in a major way, however, in 2003, when ABC recruited him, somewhat out of the blue, to serve as its late-night host, taking over the 12.05 a.m. slot. It took him a while to find his footing on the Alphabet Network, particularly with Nightline as his lead-in and the network's audience increasingly shifting from blue-collar male to middle-class female, but he eventually got the hang of things and started consistently providing laughs and amusement. From viral videos like 2008's I'm Fucking Matt Damon and I'm Fucking Ben Affleck to mean tweets, which became a recurrent feature starting in 2012. In 2013, ABC moved Kimmel up from 12.05 a.m. to 11.35 p.m., placing him opposite his childhood hero, CBS's David Letterman, and a guy he had major reservations about, NBC's Jay Leno. Suffice it to say, he held his own through the final years of their respective runs and continues to do so now as one of Late Night's veterans, along with TBS's Conan O'Brien. Over the course of our conversation at Kimmel's home in Los Angeles, he and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how his family and David Letterman shaped his sense of humor as a kid and how a high school opportunity led him into the world of radio, why a fairly intellectual guy wound up associated with frat boy-type television shows and why he grew to resent their most enthusiastic fans, what precipitated him getting his own late-night show and why, during its early days, he himself sometimes hoped it would be canceled, how his show's release of the Damon and Affleck videos marked a turning point in his show's and late-night's history leading five years later to his elevation to the 11.35 slot, what the last year has been like for him, from hosting the Oscars for the first time and presiding over the ceremony's insane finish, 
to opening up about his newborn son's life-threatening heart condition and the American healthcare system in an emotional 13-minute monologue that no one who saw it will ever forget, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jimmy, thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always begin just with basic. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Brooklyn. I was raised in Las Vegas. My mother was a hooker. My father was <laughs> also a hooker. So that's where they met at work. Right. No, my mom was a homemaker. Yes. Which, you know, that really is the hardest job yeah. of all. Yes. They say, I guess. I don't know. It looks like an easier job than going to work every day to me, but. Of course, I'm kidding. But yeah. my dad worked for a company that Howard Hughes owned called Summa Corporation. Okay. They owned seven casinos in Las Vegas. And my dad's job, as I understand it, we never really asked him what he was going to do, was <laughs> to set the odds on the slot machines. Seriously? So, yeah. Every casino has a certain payout, typically somewhere between 95 and 97%. Yeah. And so... They have, you know, they have systems to make sure they make money. It's not random, you know. They know if they get a, a million dollars, you know, that they'll make like $30,000 off of right, it. So right. that's what my dad did. And then he went on to work at American Express and IBM. But that's how we wound up in Las Vegas. Wow. How would you describe your role in the family and at school? I think people would assume that you were the funny one at home or you were the class clown or whatever. But what was the, how would you characterize it? I was definitely, I wouldn't say I was a, a clown, like I wasn't disruptive, but I like to make the class laugh. Yep. At home, though, everyone in my family's funny, so it wasn't like I was the funny one. I was one of the funny ones. Someone said it started, one of your relatives, I guess, was interviewed, and they were saying it was started with your grandfather. He was really the crazy one in a way. My grandfather, these, these paintings you see right yeah. here on, on the wall in my house, my grandfather painted those of his parents and his in-laws. He was a character. He was a very funny guy, and... I assume he had funny relatives too, so I don't want to say necessarily that it started with him, but <laughs> he would do the funniest things. You could really never get him. He was very good-natured, very good-humored always. He never had a problem with anybody. He, he'd do things like he once he had to go to a wedding with my aunt, somebody she worked with, and he was going along as her date. So he decided, and he was almost 90 years old at the time, to wear a blonde woman's wig to the <laughs> wedding. And he never said it was a joke he just wore it seriously and spoke to everyone in a serious way and he didn't know anybody at the wedding they right. just i guess if you're he, ever gonna do it that's the situation they thought he was out of his mind <laughs> he's a very sweet guy but odd i have a piece of his artwork upstairs <laughs> he made the uh, the last supper da vinci's last supper instead of jesus and the apostles it's big bird and the muppets <laughs> And he was an artist. He'd paint on... He'd, every day he'd have a cup of coffee and then he'd put a little hole in the bottom of an egg and he'd strain the egg out of the, the shell into his coffee. He'd put the coffee in the microwave and then poach the egg in the coffee. Oh, my God. Maybe throw a few Cheerios in there. <laughs> and then he'd take the egg and he'd cook it in the microwave for a minute so it got hard and he'd paint on the egg. Do this every day. And by the end of his life, he had thousands of eggs with... <laughs> pictures of his grandchildren painted on them and then just random things like a dog or David Letterman oh <laughs> whatever he was watching on TV and there were, we each got to take like a thousand eggs home when he died I know you were a very passionate artist as a kid I've read is that where that comes from 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I think actually we have artists on both sides of our families, yeah. my mom's and my dad's, but definitely my grandfather was the chief artist and humorist in the family. So the the everyday family dynamic, I gather you initially were kind of you know self-conscious about, but then realized that this was good material at, cer- at a certain point? 100%, yeah. <laughs> well, I had friends who lived, you know, had normal families. My best friend, who's now my band leader, lived right across the street from me. Right. And his parents are the two nicest people in the world. I mean, they never... I don't remember them ever raising their voices in <laughs> in the nine years I lived across the street from them. Right. So then when he would come over to my house, Cleto, it was very different. You know, everyone was yelling all the time. That's really like how we communicated, especially my Aunt Chippy, who is a loudmouth, heavy smoker, gambler, she plays video poker. You know, she's got all the qualities <laughs> you'd want in an Aunt Chippy. And so I didn't realize that they were funny until Cleto kind of he, he said i remember one night he said what are you doing tonight and i said oh my aunt chippy and uncle frank are coming <laughs> over and he said oh can i come over i was like yeah if you want to <laughs> you know, i don't can't imagine why you would want to come over and he's like oh they're hilarious and then i realized like oh yeah they are hilarious yeah and i started taping them and imitating them and playing the tapes back and my cousin sal and i would write things quotes from my aunt chippy that she hadn't said yet, but we imagined she would say. She would say charming things like, Frank, take gas and die. <laughs> well, and ultimately, you directed all of this in a, in a good way because they all popped up on your show, right? Every one of these people. Not all of them, but yeah. yeah most of them. But yeah, the stars certainly the stars. have. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so from an early age, it's, it's well known. You were obsessed with David Letterman. So how did that begin, and, and why did you feel so strongly about him? It began because I would sit at my desk drawing. My family, as I mentioned, was a very loud family. So in order to have any peace and quiet, you have to stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning, which I did. (laughs) I had a little black and white TV set, and I'd draw comic books and cartoon characters. What age are we talking about here? We're talking about like 13 years old. I mean, this went on for a while, but when I started staying up late and... Yeah, I'd watch Johnny Carson. I'd watch, I had a whole regimen of television shows. I love all the black sitcoms, different strokes, what's happening, Sanford and Son. I'd watch those, you know, good times. Then I had a whole, like, my day was planned around what was on television. Eight is Enough was on in the afternoon, (laughs) you know. And then I get to Johnny Carson, and then I started right at the beginning when Letterman started, I started watching Letterman. And then that's when I felt like, Oh, this is like for me. This is this is a show for me. But what specifically about him versus Carson or any of the other guys? His humor was almost like inverted. It was he wasn't making jokes. He was making fun of jokes. Right, and right. Of course, there were actual jokes in the show, but a lot of it was just pointing out the silliness when it comes to show business. And he was putting people on television who didn't belong on television. And I'd never seen that before. And I loved it. So he, he went on the air in February 83, I think. How did your love for him grow? What were some of the manifestations of it as you went through your adolescent years? Well, I had a small group of friends. I remember mentioning it to one of my friends for the first time and getting a big reaction from that friend. It was something like, it wasn't like today where you talk about your TV shows all the time. Right. Now it's all anybody talks about right. besides Donald Trump. <laughs> but there was a time when you kind of kept that to yourself and... 
I remember mentioning it to someone at school, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. I like that. But it was really my grandfather, my, my grandpa Sal, who loved the show also. He would stay up late, and he, he asked me, he said, you ever see that Letterman? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we would watch it together whenever I was there. And I had a small group of friends who were just like, we were just all into Dave. I started drawing late night with David Letterman on my book covers at school. I had buttons with Dave's <laughs> face on them. I had themed parties on Friday nights when they would have a special show. You know, the show was only Monday right. through Thursday for a long time. And eventually I got to go see the show. My Uncle Vinny and Aunt Fran got tickets to the show while I was visiting New York. And I went to the show with my Uncle Vinny. We drove into the city from Long Island. I put an exhaust whistle in his tailpipe. So he didn't know why his car was whistling the whole way. <laughs> People were like right. flagging us right. on the freeway. There's something sticking out of here. But we got to Letterman and the guests were Jay Leno and Gilda Radner. Wow. And that was pretty crazy, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, So that was the only time I saw the show in New York. And what about your car? Did I hear something about your car? I had a license plate that said late night. Yeah, I got a personalized license plate. L8NITE. <laughs> By the way, I went to the DMV to pick it up, and the woman goes, you're a Letterman fan, huh? And I was like, yeah. Like, you know, at this time still, <laughs> it was like a weird thing to meet right, somebody. Who knew right. that. And I said, yeah, you have you seen the show? She goes, you think you're the only one that has a television? <laughs> All right. Okay, so while you're still in high school, and this clearly, uh, I guess you could say, an infatuation with him was, was growing, how do you end up hosting a college radio show? You're still in high school. What was that about? I just I worked at a clothing store called Miller's Outpost. We primarily sold Levi's 501 jeans, fourteen ninety seven. <laughs> and there was a guy that worked there who was a disc jockey on the college radio station. And he thought I was funny because I was always screwing around in, in the store. And he's like, you know, you should be on the radio. And at that time, I, I just read an article, an interview of David Letterman in Playboy magazine that said he'd started in radio. Mm -hmm. Not that I was looking to host a talk show. I wasn't. But it just made me interested in the medium. And Howard Stern was somebody that my Uncle Vinny was making cassette tapes and sending them to me from New York to Las Vegas. And I'd listen to these tapes over and over and over again. And I thought, yeah, well, I, that would be a fun thing to do. And so he said, come in and meet the program director. So I went to UNLV. I was in high school at right. the time. I met the program director. The guy later told me that the program director spotted me from the window it was over the cafeteria, the radio yeah. station, and he saw me walking through the... <laughs> I don't... He probably... Now, in retrospect, he probably just thought I was much younger than everyone right. there, but <laughs> I, it, the story went that he said I had a look in my eye or something. <laughs> and I went up to his office, and he said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to do a show where I interview people and make fun of them. <laughs> and he said, all right, you'll be on Sunday night for a half an hour at like nine o'clock right. and I was like really he said yeah I said okay well he said find a guest and so I did I went through the yellow pages and I found a guy that was billed as the hairstylist of the stars right I just flipped through the yellow pages right. till I found a guest and I called the guy I said do you want to be on this radio show and he said yeah I'd love to <laughs> and the guy came down I wish I had this tape I don't know why I don't have the tape but the guy came down and sat for an interview it turned out the only star 
whose hair he'd styled was John Davidson. <laughs> Remember John Davidson? Vaguely, yeah. He was on That's Incredible, I think. was, And he also had a talk show, a daytime talk show. But he also had a white spot in his hair, like a skunk spot. And so most of the interview was about that. The spot. <laughs> yeah. I came home, I drove home, and I got home, and, you know, it's like 10.30. My parents and my aunt and uncle were at the house, and they were very excited. They'd listened to it, and they were really excited. And I got a thrill, I got a real thrill out of it. Because they had really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I was like, wow, this is something different, you know. And, and me, so this continued until you went off to college. Yeah, I, I kept doing that, and I started calling into a local radio station. There was a DJ I met. I won an art contest, and I wound up having to stand next to the mural I painted at a department store, and this disc jockey from the local pop radio station was yeah. there. His name is Anthony Miles. He still lives in Redondo Beach. I keep in touch <laughs> with him. He and I started talking, and he's like, you're funny. You should call into my show. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I would love to. So I started doing characters, and I'd call into his show. I'd do, like, little sketches. This is while you were now in high school, it, still in high school, and then college. And then college. Yeah. First of all, what was, were you being compensated for all this stuff no, in high school? No, Never. I got paid nothing, no. But it was a great experience. So so you go off, you I guess, a year at UNLV, and then, then you decide to go to ASU for a couple more years. I didn't really decide. My parents, my dad lost his job, and he's like, I got one in Arizona and you're coming. Oh, okay. And so that was all right. So, yeah. but in the meantime, what were you studying? What was your sort of long-term plan at that point? I wanted to be an artist. That was my plan. That's really how I was known in school is, yeah. you know, I was an artist. I was good at it. My art teacher liked me and encouraged me. And that was what I was planning to do. So broadcasting related stuff was pretty much just limited to calling into this radio show? Yeah. It was just for fun. I just got a, you know, I got a thrill out of the fact that my friends would hear it. So what was it that happened that you left ASU before graduating, but suddenly started working in radio? There was a time at which I decided that I wanted to be in radio. I wanted to be a radio disc jockey. I loved it so much. I loved being in a radio station. You know, I, I loved everything about it. I loved the there's a whole world in radio. There's a, they have their own trade papers, and you learn who's a legend and who's right. great and who's overrated. Right. And Rick Dees is in L.A. making four million dollars a year, and he <laughs> sucks. And Howard, you know, right. like you know, all these guys, these characters in radio, Mark and Brian, who are big here in L.A. Right. and Jonathan Brandmeier in Chicago, Steve Dahl and Gary Meyer, and you know, <laughs> all these guys that right. were, you know, people that I looked up to yeah so you wanted to do that but did you get a job is that why you left school or that was so that you could try to get a job I never intended to graduate I was just going to college so right. that my parents wouldn't throw me out of the house <laughs> I never took college seriously right. I would not even go really my parents thought I was going right I'd go to my girlfriend's house and take a nap <laughs> instead of going to class okay so once once you did get your first job in radio, which I think was was still in Vegas. No, my first real my well, if you mean well, job, okay, like Phoenix, I guess being right? paid, yeah. was in Seattle. Oh, Seattle. Okay. I worked for free in Phoenix the whole time. Okay. I befriended a guy named Kent Voss. Two guys, Mike Elliott and Kent Voss. Right. Mike left to go do a show in Orlando, and he left Kent behind. And Kent and I decided we we're going to get a job together, and we made a demo tape at an oldie station in Phoenix, Arizona. And that company, the company that owned the yeah. oldie stations, 
hired us to do mornings at their station in and Seattle. And the way you knew him, though, was because you had impressed him by when you called into that show, yeah, right? Yeah, I knew him from calling in, yeah. That's when you're a disc jockey, if you get a good caller, <laughs> you establish a relationship with that right, person. Right, it's right. Not, you, you think, you know, it's not how it goes, you know. <laughs> like, when I was in Palm Springs, I only had, like, two callers. Right. I don't know that anyone was listening What's to the show we were doing. A little older population there, I guess. You know, I get whatever excuse you right, want to make right. for me, you can make, <laughs> but no one was listening. So you worked at and you got fired from a lot of different radio stations. I, From what I've got here, Seattle, Phoenix, Tampa, Palm Springs, Tucson, and finally L.A. Yeah, I wasn't fired in Palm Springs. I quit. You that quit. Job. Yeah, okay. I moved to Tucson. Noted, to a, noted. Yeah. So, but what was that about? I mean, you, were you... I was stealing. You were stealing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a oh, yeah, right. Well, why was I fired? Well, first of all, radio is a very hard business, and you don't have a ton of time. And ratings aren't something, especially in local radio, that are particularly accurate. So you can right. get a great book, and it's like, oh, this is fantastic. And then you can have a terrible book that follows it. They're really up and down. Yeah. The sample size is nothing. Right. So unless you're there for a long period of time, you don't have any kind of real, like, accurate reflection of how you're doing. But in Seattle, my first job, we did very well in the ratings, and they still fired me because they did not like me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a difficult employee? I, no, I wasn't. I, was, I never missed a day. I, you know, I worked harder than anybody there right. by a long shot. Right. That sometimes was part of the right. problem. <laughs> But I was a maniac. You know, I didn't know about diplomacy. I would tape my boss in meetings and play it back on the air the next day. I mean, (laughs) I was constantly, constantly fucking with my bosses. And I was a kid, too. You know, I was 20 years old at this time. And, you know, this is a guy, he's 50 years old. I can only imagine if some 20-year-old punk came in and go, listen, that's your way of doing it. We're going to do this my way. They wanted me to play comedy service bits, which are these horrible badly written comedy bits that they'd play in multiple markets so you get them from this this company they feed them to you via satellite and then these dish jockeys would just put these 60 second bits on the air and they were wacky and they were terrible and i refused to put any of them on the air <laughs> they're like these are beloved they've been on this right. station for 15 years I'm like and i just say i didn't come here to play those bits right. i'm not here to do that right. and then they'd just fire me, you know, and I couldn't understand it each time. I know, you were shocked. Know what was going on? You right. know, I had, a, you know, I had a wife at a certain point. Then I had a kid, and then right. I had another kid. And well, I'm, we should know because I mean, so you, how old were you when you first got married? I was twenty when I got married, and two kids by what age? Two kids by twenty-six. So you're having to be a provider on these incomes, which were probably not wonderful to begin very with. Lo- very low, yeah, and sporadic, right? right. So I guess the big breakthrough would have been, it seems like these two things were roughly simultaneous in the, in the I guess, mid to late 90s where you come to L.A. as Jimmy the Sports Guy on the Kevin and Bean Morning Show, KROQ, and then also right about the same time you wind up with Ben Stein, of all people, doing Win Ben Stein's Money. It seems yeah. like those happen roughly at the same time. And even though they you... They didn't. They no? didn't happen. It seems like it, but... I was on with Kevin and Bean at K-Rock for three years before, before that. Ben Stein. Is that what led to Ben Stein? Because you were popular in L.A.? Yeah. There were producers, a guy named Michael Davies, who went on to do right. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Right. And he heard me on the radio, and he pulled me in to audition for a show. 
And I didn't like the idea of the show, so I told him no. <laughs> he went crazy. Well, because you turned down a number of TV opportunities. Yeah, there were a lot of people. Fred Silverman really was the first guy who let me host a run-through of a game show. And he was a character. I mean, he is a yeah, character. Yeah. Well, he did a great thing. I was a writer on this game show. So I'd go to K-Rock, and I'd work until noon, and then I'd go work a few hours as a game show writer for a show that never got on the air. And I would host the run-throughs, and I was hoping that they would ask me to be the host of the show. But I hadn't expressed this to anyone. <laughs> and the producer of the show was not interested in me being the host for reasons <laughs> I still don't know. But Fred Silverman, who wasn't there most of the time, pops in for our run-through a couple of nights before we're supposed to present this thing. And he says, we're going to have host auditions the next day. And he says, in a very dramatic way, and I'll never forget this, he says, Cancel the host auditions. He's our host. <laughs> I don't think he knew what my name was at right. the time. He was that kid. Yeah. He made me the host. And I looked over at this guy, Phil Gurren, who is the producer of the show. And I was like, hey, guess what? I'm the host. And <laughs> Phil was kind of a little bit embarrassed, I think. And right. he said afterward, he goes, yeah, and who knows? Maybe, uh, you know, if the show gets picked up, maybe you'll even be the host on TV. <laughs> I was like, I, really? Huh? Right. <laughs> so... That show didn't go, but they had a big presentation and a bunch of executives were there. Right. One of them was Michael Davies, and he saw me at the show. He didn't like the game show, right. but he liked me, and he offered me, I think, three shows before Win Ben Stein's Money, and I said no to all of them, and he was starting to get like crazy, you know? And, you know, I'm on the radio. I'm a dish jockey. I'm not making any money, and I'm saying no to these TV and shows. And again, with kids, you got to provide for it. But I don't want to make it sound like I had some kind of, like, there was a plan, or I was wise, or any right. of those things, because I wasn't. I guess I had no common sense, or maybe <laughs> I accidentally had some. I was just right. like, no, that sounds bad. I don't think, I, I, I don't think that'll work. That's kind of how it I was evaluating. It wasn't that, you know what, if I do this, it's, it undermines what I could actually do if I no, wait for a better opportunity. Not at all. I had yeah. no intention of being on television. I thought I thought it was going to be a radio disc jockey. They had a show called Pop Quiz, and the idea of the show was they'd take things that were going on in the news, the tabloids, whatever, and then the contestants would say, yeah, that really happened, or that didn't happen, or whatever. And I, I remember saying to them, well, how will this be taped? And they said, well, we'll tape five a day, and we'll do them like all in like three weeks. And I was just like, well, that's not going to work. The news is changing. Right. That's not going to work at all. I'm not going to do that. And then that was that. And I said no to that show. So what was it about Ben Stein that... Like, I love the get? title. Win Ben Stein's Money is a great title. Right. I love the concept of the show. And when they told me who the host of the show was, yeah. the guy from First Bueller, right. who says Bueller, Bueller, I was like, oh, that's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I'll definitely do that. But then I had to audition basically for Ben and for the other producers of the show okay. they had no sidekick it was not a a spot on right, the show right. they just felt like it needed something yeah and they brought me in and i did an audition and ben and i hit it off immediately and beautifully in fact last month was our 20 year anniversary mm -hmm. of that show premiering and we went out to dinner and that's great celebrated and we hit it all i don't know we just had chemistry it was just luck really and we should note you guys shared daytime emmys in 99 and 2001 and it was around that same period, I guess, that you also first met a struggling comedian named Adam Carolla, right? Right in there? When I was on the radio at K-Rock, I was doing the sports, and this was right at the beginning. I was going to have an on-air boxing match with another guy on the show, this guy, <laughs> Michael, the maintenance man. Right. 
And we didn't really have a feud, but we played it up mm-hmm. like we did. And we we're going to have this big thing called the Bleda in Reseda. It was the country club, this boxing gym in, in Reseda. And right. it became like a big deal. So we went on the air and we said, we need trainers. You know, we need this, that, whatever. This trainer shows up at the radio station looking for the other guy. He wanted to train the other guy, right. Michael. Michael wasn't there that morning. And I let the guy in. He knocked on the back door. And it was Adam Carolla. <laughs> And he said, yeah, I'm here. I heard, you know, you're looking for a trainer. I was like, well, we were kind of thinking maybe people would call uh, rather than just come to the radio station, but come in. And so I said, yeah, do you want to train me? And he said, yeah, okay." And so I went to his apartment in Pasadena the next day and we hit it off. You know, we we didn't do much training. We did mostly talking. Well, was he actually capable of training, or he was just posing yeah, as a trainer? Yeah, he was a boxing really? trainer. Yeah, he, he he was a boxing trainer, and Adam, you know, is a good boxer. I didn't realize that. He made a movie called The Hammer. He plays a boxer, and it's a very good movie, actually. But he trained me a little bit. Mostly, he made fun of me. <laughs> and then after we were done with the fight, which I lost, right, right. you know, we were kind of like, let's keep going out to lunch every yeah, day. Yeah. We really fell in love is yeah, what happened. Yeah, yeah. We would have these long lunches. I mean, three hours long. <laughs> we just talk and talk and talk. And I said, we got to get you on the show. And, you know, he showed me a public access show that he'd done. And I was dreading seeing it because those are always terrible. Yeah, mortifying. Yeah. And it was one person after another calling and cursing at him. <laughs> but somehow it was... Very, very funny. Yeah. And I mean, it was really funny. And I, I, I watched the whole thing and he's sitting next to me. And I was like, well, that was that was great. He <laughs> says, really? <laughs> you know, he never had a compliment before. I was right. like, yeah, that was actually really funny. And, you know, so we figured out a way to get him on the radio, which was a character named Mr. Bertram. He was a local shop teacher in L.A. <laughs> and he started out by calling into the show, the Kevin and Bean show and saying like, I'm not going to be in today. I know my kids listen to this uh, <laughs> show. Uh, and he'd give like instructions right, for right, the day right. over the air. And it was very funny. It became popular instantly. I mean, right. it really became a like a local sensation. And then he got the job. The station offered him the job hosting Loveline at night, which became a syndicated show not long after he so that's started that there. Started. Wow. And it was a little weird for me because, you know, I brought this guy in. Yeah. I'd been in radio for eight years at yeah. the time. And... He just flew right past me. I mean, he really did, you know. And I was like, wow, boy, that's, I don't know how I feel about this. Right. But I was happy. I was very happy for him. I just felt like kind of, I felt like, like, well, maybe I, I'm not that great at this, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of things. I actually made a decision to start to stop being such a team player because I always wrote all of my jokes for the host and whatever and to focus a little bit more on on my character yeah, and myself yeah. and it, it made a big difference really at what point do you and Corolla and I guess a third person Dan Kellison I'm not sure how he entered the equation but you guys now come up with this concept for the man show you go ahead and create it and it ends up becoming the second highest rated show on Comedy Central behind only South Park I mean how did it come to be and why was that so popular just the political incorrectness of it all or what well i'll start at the beginning i went to a meeting i had a manager at the time who set me up on a a meeting with one of these schlocky daytime tv producers and he said i want you to do a daytime talk show with this woman ellen k who was rick d's sidekick and he said you're gonna have to appeal to women that's you know and i I remember thinking my wife doesn't even like me that's not (laughs) happening 
So I had a cell phone. I had 20 minutes a month on the cell phone. It was for emergencies only. Right. And I used like 18 minutes of it to call Adam <laughs> to rant about this meeting right. I just had. And I said, we need to do a show. Why are all these shows for I said, we need to do a show for men. And, you know, of course, the title became The Man Show. Right. But the first idea I had for it was with girls on trampolines. And, <laughs> and that's really what sold the show, yeah. the idea of the girls on trampolines. Right. But ultimately, Daniel Kellison was a letterman and then Rosie producer. And he was working on a show called Vibe, which was a late night talk show. Quincy Jones was the EP. John Stewart introduced us to him at a K-Rock concert. And I was always super interested in Letterman, so I had a million questions for him, and we hit it off. And so the three of us, we put this show together, and Michael Davies, who hired me on Win Ben Stein's Money, just gotten a job at ABC, and he said, I want this to be the first show I pitch to ABC, my new employers. (laughs) And so we went in, and we pitched to Stu Bloomberg and Jamie Tarsus, and... We had these. We were paired with these schlocky, terrible producers who did like supermarket sweep right. or something. Right. They weren't into the show. Like you know, <laughs> it was like a, we just got stuck with them. And we went into this meeting. We pitched the show, and they bought the show basically in the room. Like we were halfway down the elevator when they called and wow. said they wanted to buy the show. And then we did the show. We made a pilot for ABC, and they hated it. <laughs> I've heard various reports. Some of it is revisionist, I'm well, sure, but. Yeah. I've heard that Michael Eisner walked out of it. You know. <laughs> Bob Iger will tell me straight out what right. actually happened. He, right. doesn't, he has no need to. He's like, oh, I, you know, basically, Michael Davies almost got fired over this <laughs> For show. bringing this to them. <laughs> but we didn't know that. Like, a day before the upfront, we thought we might get picked up. Like, little did we know, we were doomed right. for weeks. Like, the show, was, there was no chance it was getting picked up. Oh, my God. But then the tape, like, got around, and we had... I think like six or seven different networks, including FX, which wound up stealing the concept of the show and putting their own version of it on before we could get ours on the air. We had six or seven networks bidding for the show, and Comedy Central said, we'll give you 26 episodes. And I didn't really want to do it at Comedy Central because I'd been there already, and I felt like I wanted to be on ABC because I wanted to be the black sheep in the family. Well, when you say you'd been there, what you were there for? I'd been at Win Ben Stein's. Oh, right, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, so and it had been a positive experience, or oh, it had been a great experience. But you just wanted to kind of broaden your horizon. I just felt like you know a show like The Man Show would stick out more on a network like ABC, which you know, keep in mind this is. 1998, 1999. 99 to yeah. 2003. Yeah, well, so yeah. Pr- yeah. it premiered then. Yeah, yeah. but that You're was, you know. it around, yeah. They, in fact, they put a show called Cupid starring Jeremy Piven on in that spot <laughs> instead. So you end up at Comedy Central, and, and it, it was hugely popular there. But you said some, I went back and read some old interviews of yours, and I got it. Actually, in fact, I think this one was around the time you were first hired to do Jimmy Kimmel Live, and you said you weren't really crazy about the fans of the show you said well, quote yeah. i don't like most of them to be honest i like a certain segment of them but i don't like them as a group close quote and how much of that was that you in fact were not really the frat you got this label oh, you're the frat guy i've never been in a fraternity it's right. the last thing i would do and, and so the whole idea you're around the the bouncing boobs the beers all this stuff every yeah. day people i'm sure out on the street that you you didn't you just were resistant to being pigeonholed as that guy no it wasn't even that i didn't even know i had no plan i you know when we we decided to quit doing the man show before i got jimmy kimmel live we'd made a decision that we'd done it and but it's not like we had 
a plan for anything else. Like, it, we, we didn't, we just weren't thinking. Well, but in that period, didn't you also, just before you, you ended the man show, you guys were starting Crank Yankers. Yes, we did Crank Yankers, and I had that, but it wasn't a show I was really on. Right, you know, right. I did voices on the show. Right, that was great. Thanks, I was, <laughs> that's really my radio days come to life, the yeah. crank calls. And, and uh, that was, again, you, Corolla, and Kellison. Right. And Comedy Central. Right. What I remember is that it's like late 2001, early 2002, not long after 9-11, Bill Maher puts his foot in his mouth in a, in a big way. Yeah. As, as he did again this year. And he said something that was, it made it untenable. It wasn't an immediate firing, but he was pretty much finished at ABC. And so right. now they have this opening, I guess, right after Night You know what people forget? People forget that they tried to hire David Letterman a year before that. Maybe not a year, but quite some time before that, which would have meant that Politically Incorrect would have been off the air anyway. Because anyway. they weren't moving Nightline off the air. They would have just moved Nightline to 1230. The days of that show were numbered anyway. Right, it wasn't doing great. And it didn't, wasn't a fit for broadcast. Well, I don't know if it wasn't fit for broadcast. I was on that show a lot. It was always fun to do, yeah. but... It just, you know, you lose the affiliates. And I happen to know how that went down. And I know this guy, Alex Wallow, who's the president of ABC. He saw the show before it aired. And he said to Bill, he said, listen, this is going to be a problem. But I'm going to let you decide whether this airs or not. It's up to you. But I'm just going to let you know, we're probably going to lose some affiliates. And if we lose affiliates, we're done. We cannot lose affiliates. And Bill, to his credit, said, I want it to air, you know, for whatever, you know. And it aired, and Alex was right. They lost affiliates, and they wound up canceling the show. Wow, that's amazing. So, But the fact that there was an opening now, you didn't know, and I guess a lot of people didn't know that ABC was looking to do a, because that was more like real-time as a, a roundtable-type show, right? They were now going to look to get into the traditional late-night talk show business, but nobody knew that. So how did that first come to your attention? I think people did know that because they did try to hire David Letterman. So obviously they were interested in thinking about it, putting a late night show on. But I think once that didn't work out, they backed off and there were no rumors or whatever. But I went into a meeting with Lloyd Braun, who was the president of the network. I I was told that because they were also talking to Jon Stewart about this job. And I have the same agent, James Baby Doll Dixon is my agent, John Stewart agent, Stephen Colbert's agent, wow, you know, wow, wow. he's got television talk shows pretty well locked <laughs> right, up. Right. So they told me that the president of ABC wants to meet with you about a Thursday night variety show. And I said, well, I have no interest in that at all. <laughs> so tell him I don't want to meet. Right. And my agent is like, listen, if the president of ABC wants to have a meeting with you, you have to go to the meeting. I said, I don't want to waste his time. I'm not interested in that. He said, you have to go to the meeting. So, all right. We never talked about a variety show, not for one minute. In fact, we just talked about David Letterman the whole time. He shared your enthusiasm. Yeah, he definitely shared my enthusiasm. He'd seen me on Letterman a few days earlier, and, you know, he liked me. And the next next thing I knew, I had the job. I mean, it was weird. Like, there was no mention of the job during the interview, and... Even after I left, I didn't know what was going on. In fact, Adam Carolla's wife worked there. She was Lloyd's assistant. (laughs) And she called and said, you know, they're going to offer you the late night slot at ABC. And I was like, what? (laughs) What late night slot? That's insane. There is no late night slot. But so that's how I got the job. It was not a lot of thought was put into it. Certainly no research was put into it. They didn't call any of my 
past employers. Well, yeah, because, I mean, normally they would run the numbers and, and yeah. stuff, right? But No, I don't know. I don't think people do that. I don't think people no? in television, I think they, they let God decide whether it worked or not. There's not. A, it's not like a product where there's a lot of research done. It's just kind of they throw it out there and then they cancel it if they don't like it. So at the time, right after you got the job, you were interviewed and you said, quote, this may make me sound like a dickhead, but I'm not surprised at all. I was disappointed that it took this long. Close quote. I was joking, probably. It, but you, so but is there any kernel in that where you, you kind of, did you feel you were always kind of going to end up with something with a big audience like that? No, not really. I don't even no. know what I was saying. What you're talking about? Probably <laughs> okay. responding in a, uh, <laughs> Just what like, I thought was a humorous, humorous. way. <laughs> never really translates to print. Okay. All right. No. So here's a phrase I've read you're not crazy about, but I hope you'll forgive me for using it. In terms of what the late night landscape looked oh, yeah. like. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. When you joined it and how others imagine you would fit into it at the, at the time you were hired. This is a quote from a 2002 article in The Observer. Quote, if late night is college and Jay Leno is the obsequious student council treasurer, David Letterman, the fifth year senior turned cranky dorm proctor, Conan O'Brien, the improv captain, and Craig Kilborn, the smarmy Lothario who slept with the freshman girls, <laughs> then Jimmy Kimmel is the cool guy, smarter than his 2.0 GPA, who <laughs> didn't mind if you borrowed his porn or puked in his room, close quote. <laughs> so for some reason, maybe because of the idea that you were this frat guy from the man show and all that stuff, yeah. Frank Eggers, you were pretty underestimated at the beginning. No, people didn't give you a hell of a lot of... No, I think I was quite accurately estimated you think at the, at the beginning. Point, yeah? <laughs> I was not underestimated. And if you watch, if you go back and watch any of those early shows, which I don't recommend anybody does, I mean, I was just flat out terrible. <laughs> just terrible. Like, my vision of hell is, well, first of all, it's a Chuck E. Cheese, but on the, <laughs> on the television at Chuck E. Cheese right. are old shows, right. you know, and oh running God. on a loop. So what was the problem in the early days? Just nobody knew what they were doing? Definitely that was one of the big problems. The host didn't know what he was doing. None of the producers knew what they were doing. Director didn't know what he was doing. Nobody knew what they were doing. The yeah. bookers didn't know what they were doing. Uh -huh. Yeah, I had times. to go to my friends. You know, I, right. My girlfriend, Sarah Silverman, at the time, right. yeah, she was on every other night. <laughs> my other girlfriend, Adam Carolla, was right. on every other night. David Allen Greer, Anthony Anderson, I like these guys, um, these people saved me. Kathy Griffin, you know, <laughs> because the show was live at 9.05 p.m., which publicists don't want to be out right. at 9.05 p.m. No. just to start with. And then secondly, they didn't know who I was. And thirdly, I was beating up on the guests. Like they would come through and make fun of them. <laughs> I didn't know point. any better. Right, like, right. Well, the audience thought that was funny. And then the publicists <laughs> were like, we'll never see you again. <laughs> Well, let, let's note some of the other ways it was different in, in those early days. So aside from being live, you didn't wear a tie. You didn't do a monologue. You served booze on the set. And as you've noted, you had some kind of random guests. Should I have a lawyer here? I feel this like is, we're giving you your deposition. <laughs> <laughs> but why weren't you canceled? I don't know. Well, Lloyd liked me. Lloyd always believed in me. Yeah. And and Bob Iger too. He always liked me and he believed in me. And Alex Wallow, another guy who, you know, who who worked there. They all I think they saw how hard I was working and how seriously I took it. And as bad as those shows were, there were occasional flashes of uh, real genuine funny. Right. And in fact, there were a lot of people who kind of missed those days that the wildness that was a part of every show. I mean, I am not one of those people, but 
there were some real highlights and there were some very low low lights. What was the highlight of the early days for you if you were to save one moment from from being deleted? There was a night where we were well, I think it may have been our, our first or second week where we had the Armenian comedian on. Yeah. And you don't know who this person is, nor does anyone, but no. he was a guy I used to have on the radio show. <laughs> and he had a ventriloquist dummy named Nick, which he didn't even know enough to refer to Nick in the third person. Like, <laughs> And he, he didn't throw his voice at all. His mouth was always moving. It was terrible. That night, we also had a cooking demonstration. It was, it was deep frying was the kind of cookbook. Okay. Yeah. And at some point... Nick got thrown into the deep fryer and then an audience's members watch was thrown into the deep fryer. And I think I was drunk on the air also because I don't know, somebody brought out vodka and we started drinking <laughs> and they were very concerned at ABC. That that was, uh, was going in the wrong very direction. Concerned. Yes. And then the next, and I got in a lot of trouble and which I was used to, I mean, right. and then the next day, I put a picture of Lloyd Braun on my desk, a, just a photograph of him. And I just had it on the desk. <laughs> and he did not he like, like that it. at all. <laughs> he hated that, in fact. And, and, you know, rightly so in a way. He's like, I, you know, I gave you this job. I'm the one that fought for you. Right. I built you this beautiful theater here right. on Hollywood Boulevard. And now you're going to fuck with me? <laughs> and I never really, like, kind of thought things out in right, that way. Right. Now, didn't that turbulent early period also though give birth to the whole Matt Damon being referenced on the show it did yeah that was a result of disappointing guest bookings <laughs> and one night we just we had bad guests I don't remember who they were but I said uh, I just want to apologize to Matt Damon we ran out of time for him <laughs> just as a little joke at the end yeah for our co-executive producer Jason who was standing just off camera and he laughed and then I just started doing it every night to just to make him laugh. And did you even know Matt Damon at that point? No, I ne never met him. He's no, not at all. That's so funny. So those those early days, you were also really. I mean, it's continued, but you were certainly then incorporating a lot of your family and friends onto the show. What was the thought process behind that? Because some of them were really stars. I mean, in particular, I guess Uncle Frank, who up until. 2011 when he passed away there was that was a good like eight years when he was pretty yeah. integral to the show i just always have the philosophy that if i think someone's funny then you can just extrapolate it and other people will think they're funny and it's always kind of worked out yeah. and my uncle frank had done our radio show a few times and you know you never know if it's too inside or <laughs> if it's only you that thinks your relatives are funny but kevin and bean the guy who are really tough judges you know i remember telling adam carolla the first time you're on their show you better be funny you'll never be on again yeah. you'll never be on the show again i'll never be able to convince them but they were really laughing hard my uncle frank was a cop in new york for 20 years he made six arrests during that time <laughs> one was by accident he was a, one of a kind i right. mean really right. truly an original and had kind of like wisdom and sweetness combined with true ignorance and <laughs> and really like just dumb i mean well somebody like, said he really thought he was there to perform security right well when i hired him he had no idea what was going on in fact he he almost didn't take the job in fact he didn't want to take the job and the only reason he did he was living in new york at the time is because he found out that the bank where he did all his checking had a branch right <laughs> near the show and had that bank not been there right. i don't think he, he would have come out 
he's such an odd character. Like he'd take $200 out of the ATM every week on Monday. And then whatever he had left at the end, at, by the next Monday, he'd give away. He'd give it out to people on the street. And he'd start fresh with a new $200. <laughs> he just, he needed It's a weird fresh. combination yes. of generosity and OCD. Yes. <laughs> okay, so if there was a turning point, it seems like it might have been the one-two punch in 2008 of I'm fucking Matt Damon and then I'm fucking Ben Affleck. We should note that the former eventually won an Emmy, which was for, for Sarah Silverman, I guess, right. and, and you guys. Would you agree that that's where people started to kind of perk up and think of you guys in a different way? Celebrities, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. That was a big deal for us. That's really like one of the first... Well, it's definitely the first late night viral video, you yeah. know, true viral yeah. video. But those videos were huge. And at the time, we didn't even have a YouTube channel. So people were posting them on their own. We don't even know how many views yeah. those got because they were all, I mean, you know, thousands of people posted them. But that was a big deal. And at that point, that's where we really, the publicists came on board. So the Matt Damon video, and then we followed it with I'm fucking Ben Affleck. Yes which I thought would be a funny <laughs> counterpunch to. Yes, yes. And Jennifer Garner was at dinner with Harrison Ford and they were talking about the video. Right. And Jennifer Garner said, yeah, they're doing, he's doing it with, with Ben. And she said, you should be in it to Harrison Ford. And he's like, I'd love to. <laughs> and so then we get a call saying, hey, you know, Harrison Ford wants to be in this video. And we're like, well, what's he going to do in the video? And right. like, well, we were going to find something for him to do in this video. And then we made it into a we are the world type thing. <laughs> and once we got Harrison Ford and then Cameron Diaz and yeah, you know, you all these anybody. stars lined yeah. up to be a part of it. That's great. And I guess just to note some of the other things that you guys have done that really, I think, went viral. We Obviously, the the mean tweets over which I think your wife, yeah, uh, my future wife, wife yeah, her creation, right? The parents telling their kids they'd eaten all of their Halloween candy. That right. was a big one. Mm -hmm. Then the the hoax, which people didn't even realize was a or was put together by you guys with the the twerker on fire, right? Yeah, that was one of that was a good one. We had one where we pretended there was a wolf on the loose in the hotel at the <laughs> Olympics in Sochi, which was another big one and yeah. we tricked the media. Right. I think the media learned a little bit of a lesson at that time because they used to just put anything on the air right. and run right. with it. And now they I think they Stop, because we did try, there were a couple of things we tried that didn't really work, go. you know. So has YouTube and and sort of the quest for the viral video and, and the fact that some of your competitors also seem to strive to create those, has that changed the way you approach your show at all? The, the fact that those things well, now I can't always, happen? I always made it a point to make sure that it didn't that that was never our goal that we always were focused on doing a television show and then it became a really big deal and now it's not such a big deal anymore i think now almost every video gets a lot of views yeah. and some of them get an extraordinary number of views i mean i think we're we have between on weeks where our show is new and not in reruns we have between 30 and 40 million views on average on youtube alone wow. That doesn't even count Facebook. That doesn't count, you know, Hulu or any of the other streaming services. And that's a lot of views. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the late night television has never been more popular than it is now. It's just not on television. Right. You know? Now, it's, does that do anything for you to have that many people looking at something on YouTube? Is it just, just well, raising uh, awareness or what? 
you know, from the standpoint of a performer, it's great yeah. because you want as many people to see what you do as possible. Yeah. From the standpoint of a television network selling advertising, I think at one time it was probably a really good thing because it highlighted your shows. But I think now most people are consuming late night television on the internet yeah. and they're not paying anything for it. And the difference between what we get paid by YouTube and the difference between what we get paid by ABC is it's gigantic. Right. It's, it's there's no comparison. So. Does it bother you? You know, if you talk to like Christopher Nolan and you said people are watching, they're consuming what you made on an iPhone, he gets pissed. I understand why that upsets him. For me, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if, yeah. even if they're watching clips as opposed to the entirety of your show. You don't mind that it's broken up in that. No, way? because there's no. You know, it's not like you don't need context right. really. You know. In early 2013, after you guys had already been on the air for 10 years, you moved from 12.05 to 11.35, directly opposite your hero, Letterman, and somebody who you thought a little less of, Leno. Why did that move come about, and what did that signify to you? Did that change things at all for what you had to do to go at 11.35 now? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. First of all, it wasn't my decision. It was ABC's decision. I think they, their confidence in me had grown I think they felt like Leno was kind of at the end of his run and that it was important to get me on before he ended it. And we were doing really well, you know, so. Well, yeah, I just want to note, the year before that move happened, you were the only late-night show that increased in the ratings. You were up 3%. Everybody else was down. And you'd also hosted the White House Correspondents Association Dinner and the Emmys in that year before the move. So you were hot, but was did it mean something to you to be at 11.35 in the way that it clearly did to others at other networks? It definitely did. It, it was a huge difference. Just you could tell the week it happened, you could tell there was a different response. I mean, different response from people I met on the street, you know, different response from the feedback we would get. It's just there, you know, people go to sleep at midnight. Yeah. Midnight, that number is, you know... Yeah. That midnight is when people go, oh, it's midnight. I better go to bed, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And so there were a lot more people watching. You know, Did you hear from that. Letterman when you were now joining his kind of elite club of people that are at 1135? I think I was on his show right before we we moved. He was always very nice to me. never tr treated me as a, a competitor, which in a way I guess isn't a compliment. <laughs> 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 well, at what point I read he gave you his ties? When did that happen? Uh, when he retired, he gave me all at his ties. Yeah. So that must have meant a lot to you, the whole the whole thing it, that you guys could be It meant collegial. more to me than a box of strips of fabric <laughs> should mean to any adult man. I got to ask you, because I think you, you clearly weren't hiding the fact that while you were very big on Letterman, you, you had some issues with Leno and... I guess, you know... You're talking about Jay Leno. Jay Leno, the, the Jay Leno. Who, I can't believe we're still talking about me not liking Jay well, Leno. Well, no, but I think it's interesting <laughs> yeah. because I've, there's only so many people that have done the job that you guys do. So I wonder just what it was that happened. I mean, we know that there's the legendary stuff where he and Dave apparently were... Well, uh, that was, you know, you remember, I, you got to remember how much I love David Letterman. So... To me, when all that stuff happened, you know, yeah. I was just a fan reading Bill Carter's book and right. whatever. And I felt like, you know, there was a there was a, a villain and a hero and Dave was the hero and Jay was the villain. So I started off with a negative feeling about. But about only for Leonard. the sake. And I believe me, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. But like he had been the main substitute host for a number of years before Johnny left. So was it 
bizarre that he would become the successor? I guess not, but to me it didn't seem right. I right, mean, right. You know, <laughs> and then and then the Conan thing put you over the top. Well, there were a lot of things. I, you know, listen, Jay and I have made peace. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after my son had his operation, he called me. He was very nice. And, uh, you know, what he did was you can't argue with his success, his longevity. I mean, you know, I will say when I was in high school, co- college, he was one of my f- all time favorite comics. And, you know, I probably some, I sometimes insert myself into situations I have no business inserting myself well, it was, into. It was funny. Like, and- even the idea that this, like, punk kid from the Man Show is, like, shooting his mouth off about <laughs> Jay Leno. Like, who, who is? I, I can only imagine what Jay Leno what must saying? have thought. Like, who is this asshole? Well, there <laughs> was a time, though, things? around, like, oh, wait, when you guys almost were going to be back to back in the ABC lineup, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that was that was definitely discussed, and that was part of well, that's you know, that was the thing. I just you know, listen, I'm I'm a sensitive person, and sometimes my feelings get hurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you and you and you know, something happened, but it was it, you know, I feel like we're well past okay, it. Okay, all right. You know. Well, you mentioned something that I, I have to ask you about, which pertains to this year, which has been a a crazy, just amazing year for you, and I guess a roller coaster in a lot of ways. You earlier this year gave this this very emotional, touching, thirteen minute monologue about your newborn son who was born with this life threatening heart condition, and then also about the greater healthcare debate which was going on at the time. And I just wonder what motivated you to share that part of your private life, and did you expect ever that it would generate the kind of response that it, it did? It was huge. Well, I felt like I had to say something about it because I was, you know, people knew my, I talk about my wife being pregnant and having a baby. And, you know, I, I felt like something had to be said. Also, I was going to have to be off the air for a while. So I thought there needed to be an explanation and I didn't want people to start investigating to find out what was going on. You know, we had enough stress as it was. And also it, you know, it just so happened that at that time, you know, Congress was deciding what they were going to do about Obamacare, the American Health Care Act, whatever you want to call it. And it really struck me as I was in this hospital that it was you put a lifetime cap on somebody's insurance and they're three years old. Where do they go from there? Where do they go from there? How, why should they be penalized for the rest of their lives? Already they have to deal with a health issue. And, and you know, you just see these parents in in this hospital and I don't think it's exceptional to to care about them. I think if Donald Trump was sitting in that hospital himself, he would have come out with the same feeling. I just don't think he has, you know. It makes no sense to me. I know so many people who've, you know, now that I've been involved in this cause or issue, whatever you want to call it, so many people have told me that they're only alive because of Obamacare or their relatives are alive only because of that, because they didn't have they weren't able to get health insurance and you know people have this idea that well you walk into an emergency room and they're going to take care of you you know I mean they're not going to let you die it's like okay you know maybe so but we have to go to the doctor once twice a week to get an echocardiogram and to get everything checked and then we're going to have to have another operation then we're going to have to have another operation after that and you know this bill doesn't get picked up you know, this, these, this is maintenance that needs to be done. This is part of it. When a kid has cancer, 
that kid is going to need treatment every day, potentially of their lives. And their parents, it's hard enough, you know, when you have to miss work, you have to be in the hospital with your child. But then to have these hospital bills on top of it, I have a friend who has two autistic children. It costs them just, they have health insurance and it costs them $100 each per child a day. So they're spending $1,400 a week just to make sure their kids get the education and the kind of treatment that they need. And I don't know, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, you know, I pay a lot of money in taxes. And, you know, I heard from a lot of lunatics after yeah, this. Yeah, sure. Like, I don't want to pay for your kids. Like, first of all, I can almost guarantee you I'm paying for you, not the other yeah, way right, around. Right. And secondly, I'm not asking you to pay for my kid. I, my, I have health insurance. My kid is taken care of. What I'm saying is that isn't it better that we all pay a few hundred dollars mm -hmm. instead of one of us getting stuck with a bill for $5 million and having to lose your house? The whole idea of, of sort of just basic decency has, has been called into question since, I guess, November. And I don't get the sense that you're one of the people who's thrilled with how things have gone since then. And so I just wonder, you know, a lot of straight news people on TV have been forced to sort of do a post-mortem and say, you know, we shouldn't have aired all the rallies live or we shouldn't have done things that probably helped to create the situation. I know that in terms of late night, Fallon got beaten up because he, you know, when Trump came on, he they say he normalized them because you ruffle his hair or whatever. He was a guest on your show. He was a guest on all of these. Do you think that is it not a laughing matter? I mean, the fact that look what we look where we are. For me, everything's a laughing matter, yeah, even serious yeah, things. Yeah, I yeah. mean, while my son was having an operation, my family was gathered in a room and there were a lot of laughs had <laughs> because that's what you do when things mm -hmm. are bad. That's how as a human being you carry on. But as far as, you know, listen, when I had Trump on, I didn't think there was any chance the guy was going to be president of the United States. I mean, he, I didn't think he was going to be the nominee. Yeah. With that said, I mean, these guys... If they're running for president, you can't predict, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what people's reactions are going to be. I mean, you know, maybe Jimmy Fallon thought he was diminishing him by messing his hair mm -hmm. up. Maybe, you know, he I'm sure he just thought this is going to be a moment with Donald Trump. But essentially, I always think like these shows that say like, oh, I wouldn't have this guy on. I wouldn't have this guy. I mean, to me, I want to know everything about somebody. I want to know how they behave in Every situation, especially if it's somebody that might be president of the United States, I want to see, you know, I want to see what their sense of humor is like. I want to see how they react to questions that they don't typically get asked. I think you can learn a lot about a person based on how they handle a late night television host. I'm not just talking about my show. I'm talking about all of these shows. So this idea, I, I, it's just like kind of a and like there's always this kind of finger pointing and like, well, we're you may you humanized him or you did <laughs> Normal, this yeah. like, all right, well, then do we go back to the apprentice and NBC shouldn't have put that on or, you know, Regis shouldn't have been friends with right. Donald Trump. Like, you know, well, come you on. say he is a great talk show guest because I guess he is he, a great talk show guest. Yeah. And he, he's, he is he's completely unfiltered. Yeah. He's a great talk show guest and an absolutely atrocious president <laughs> of the United States. <laughs> Okay, with the last few minutes here, I just want to ask you about the Oscars, which are also, like Jimmy Kimmel Live, nominated for some Emmys this year. First, I read a crazy story. I can't believe it's true. But was your first exposure to the Oscars, in a way, in-person exposure, 
22 years ago. What what happened with you at the Oscars in 95? Well, I wasn't at the actual Oscars, but I I was doing radio. I was on the Kevin and Bean show, and Kevin and I thought it would be fun to sneak into the governor's ball. After the after the, after show, the yeah. Oscars. We snuck into the Grammys once. We got into the actual show, but... <laughs> So we went, I, th- I had this full, I had this idea, and by the way, the reason I, I came up with this idea when I was in high school, and I wanted to go see this guy named The Fox, he was the fastest beer drinker in the world, he later became our announcer and band on The Man Show, <laughs> he was the fastest beer drinker in the world, and we didn't have fake IDs, and we really wanted to see him, so I went to this bar slash restaurant at noon, and we just stayed there all day. And so, you know, they didn't start checking IDs right. until like 8 o'clock at night. And so I thought, oh, this would work for the Academy <laughs> Awards. So we went early, like, I don't know, like 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. We're dressed in tuxedos. And we just hung around inside the ballroom next to the Shrine Auditorium. Right. And we just waited and waited and waited. And we're like, this is going to work. You know, we become part of like <laughs> the furniture here. And then right before the stars started pouring into the ballroom they cleared the ballroom sweet, including yeah. us <laughs> i lied and told them that we were there with we had a producer on the phone and he was saying he's like oh the producer of the show is uh who is the classic gil cates, gil gil cates. cates. Yeah, yeah yeah tell him you're with gil cates and we're like we're with gil cates <laughs> and they're like no, you're not with gil yeah. cates out <laughs> and they kicked us out and we went out the exit door and we saw just a big stream of people flooding into the entrance door and we just made a U-turn and just went right back in the That's place. That's awesome. So that was, that was your first thing. Now you come to all these years later, you're at ABC, which has aired the Oscars for decades. You've been ABC's guy for 15 years. You've very successfully hosted the Emmys, the ESPYs, the White House Correspondents Association Dinner, a Comedy Central row, so many high-profile events. Why did it take until 2017 for you to host the Oscars? I wondered why. Well, first of all, it's really not ABC's decision, which is one of the reasons why, because they obviously were eager for me to host the Oscars. But I think that there was concern that I was not in the movie business and they want to have somebody that's in the movie business. For well, however, might have been their greatest host. They would make an argument that Johnny Carson was in movies, you know, and and I don't know, yeah, whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, but yeah. that's that was that was supposedly one of the things. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. I don't think that was that was all of it, but that okay. was one of the things. So the 89th Oscars come around and everyone who saw it seemed to agree that you and your producers, DeLuca and Todd, did a terrific job. The first thing, though, that people will think about in association with that night forever is going to be those last few minutes. And I just wonder if you can take me through your mindset. You've almost made it through the whole show. You're in those last few minutes and all hell breaks loose. What was that whole end of the night like for you? Well, at that point, it was like, you know, in the, in the Olympics when you're, you've won and then you're running around the arena with a flag in your hand. It was kind of like that, (laughs) you know, we'd, you know, our writers were backstage. The reviews for the show were very, very yeah, positive. And yeah. that's rare that you get anything like that. Most people are critical online. And and we felt that it had gone very well. And, you know, it went very well. And then I just have one more bit to do with Matt Damon. And we're Matt and I are sitting in the audience. And he remembers this differently. He says I told him. But I, I'm I'm pretty sure it happened like this. Matt is looking at it. He goes... 
I think they may have given the award to the wrong person. <laughs> you know, it's weird. On the Emmys, uh, when I was presenting on the Emmys yeah. the year previous, yeah. that's the bit I did. I did a bit on the Emmys saying, you realize... I could give this. No one knows what's yeah, in this envelope. Yeah, you the envelope, right? Yeah, I could give this to anyone. Right. And like you know, it always it's always been in my head yeah, that that yeah, is yeah. how it could go, and that's what happened. And uh, you know, obviously, they read what was on the envelope, but there was a point when I realized it was serious. Was when the stage manager suddenly was in the shot and seemingly like willingly in the shot. It wasn't an accident. And I thought. He's not supposed to be up there. And then I thought, well, what's going to happen here? And I thought, oh, I, I guess I have, who's going to, the producers can't go up there. They're not even mic'd. Right. You know, it's not like the director's going to make an announcement over the PA. You know, what are, well, I just walked up on stage and tried to figure out what was going on. And I will admit that it was, I don't know why, it just, the whole thing seemed funny to me the whole time. <laughs> Like it's just the commotion the that was going and on. Just to begin with, famous people right, and the confusion right. and the you know just everybody trying to figure out what was happening. And also, we were racing to end the show. Right. Like we had this target time. It's like if we can get out before you know this this time will be you know the ratings will be good. And if we go past this time, the ratings will go down. And sure enough, we didn't just go past the time. We sailed right by the time because we added another like 11 minutes to the show I think well you know it's funny so at the valet after the Oscars and I was I was lucky enough to be there that night so I will not forget any of that but I'm standing next to David Oyelowo the actor from Selma and some other stuff and he had a much better seat than I did and he said that when he saw Brian Cullinan the PricewaterhouseCoopers guy who screwed up come on the stage he thought it was you and Matt Damon doing a prank because we've done an article at the Hollywood Reporter well before any of this happened that Brian Cullinan looks just like Matt Damon. Yeah. So he thought this was some kind of a elaborate screw-up that you guys had, or oh. bit that you guys had put together. It was an elaborate so. screw-up. <laughs> but anyway, I guess so now the cool news is that you're coming back for the 90th in February. You're the first person who's going to have hosted consecutive Oscars since the 90s. So what, as far as the things that you can control, what were your biggest takeaways from the 89th in terms of of things that went well and things that could have gone better that you would apply to the 90th? Well, I, you know, I think it went very well and I, I'm happy with it. I always have, you know, I pick everything apart. They're minor things, really. You know, I, I'll, I'll slow down a little when I do the monologue. I was shot out of a cannon. I think we had a nice mix of pre-taped and planned bits. And then I think you have to take risks during the show. I think that's the key. It, I think, like, bringing those people off of that tour bus and into that theater, right. you have no idea how that's going to go. And then when it goes well, it's it's a real score. Right. If it doesn't, it's a disaster. Right. But I think you need to have potential disaster looming right. to keep people interested in the show. And, you know, it's a long show, and I think a lot of it, you have to, you have to keep the audience interested. And I think feeding them definitely helps keep yes. them interested. And, you know, some people are like, oh, enough with the food and the thing. But... You know, you need to keep your audience engaged. You need to keep those people alive because they probably haven't eaten since, yeah, yeah. you know, some of them Christmas, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you just have to kind of keep. Right. So there are certain things that I'll do the same way and do again. I do like to keep it loose. I like to have certain times where I go out on stage and I don't know what I'm going to say other than introducing the next element to the show. So 
I want to make sure to do that again. And, you know, for better or worse. There was a a moment in the show, the monologue went very well and the Matt Damon stuff was going well. But then I came out and I made a couple of OJ jokes from the audience. And what I didn't take into account that when people are on camera, they're much less inclined to laugh at jokes that are in questionable taste. So if I was up on the stage, I think I would have, would have played better. I think it would have gotten a better reaction because people can laugh yeah. anonymously. That maybe I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't have. But I really felt like like I like oh it was a moment where I was like oh this is all going south right now. All the good whatever, <laughs> all the goodwill that I earned f- that during the so monologue funny. is now gone, and I got to win this audience back. But I will tell you weirdly, it was my favorite part of the show. Just the idea of standing there and like having a moment of truly bombing live on the Oscars <laughs> is a thrilling, it, yeah. it's thrilling. It is. Yeah, There's yeah. A, a, like an adrenaline you get from it <laughs> that I can't even explain. Many, many have experienced that, I guess. Uh, I've experienced it many times in my yeah. life and I almost always take a moment to stop and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the final, final thing here is just this rapid fire. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Who's been your favorite and least favorite guest in the history of Jimmy Kimmel Live? Oh, favorite is really hard. You know, one of the great surprise guests, I mean, there are people who have been on many times because I love them so much, you know. You know who they are. You know, the people you see regularly on the show. But Dustin Hoffman was so funny and so great on the show. That really surprised me. I didn't see him as a... I didn't imagine he would be a such a raconteur and right. such a funny guy. I don't know why I didn't imagine it. Now I look at him and I think, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. But he was only on the show once and he was great. You know who else was surprisingly great? George Bush. Really? Which yeah. one? The W. W, yeah. yeah. You kind of got it when yeah. you meet him. Yeah. Having Oprah on the show was, I know you had her on your yeah, show yeah. And, and you had a similar experience I did. It was just like, just to... And I know this sounds weird, but just to like be in her presence and listen to the way she speaks and the way she makes people around her feel, I really remember going like, oh, okay, I get, I really get it yeah. now because I didn't, you know, my wife used to watch Oprah and then I'd come home from work and she'd yell at me for the things that she saw going on in the Oprah show. I was like, <laughs> I'm, who is this woman and why is she make, getting me into fights? Has there been anybody that you just hated? Yeah, there have been people I hated. I mean, you know, I hated, but that I didn't hit it off with or right. I, I disliked. But I nobody had, that came on and was rude or that you'd never yeah, want to see again? sure there were. Yeah. I had bad experiences with people. I once had a very bad experience with Jared Leto. I had a bad experience with Omarosa was awful. <laughs> there have been a few of those. They're much less frequent now. I think there was a time where people didn't know, you know, they didn't know who I was, right. so they didn't feel like they had to be nice, right. you know. Okay, if you could snap your fingers and turn your show into a once a weeker like Mars or Oliver's or Samantha Bee's, would you? No, but it would be much easier. And I disagree with anyone that says differently. Yeah. I, I just know that if we had a half hour to fill every week, it would be it would be a very strong half hour. Or it's even sometimes more than that, but it's still not what you guys do. How many you're putting you're on the air for how many hours a week? Yeah, but it's not even the on the air part. That's almost the easiest part of the, the writing of the day. It's yeah, it's the meetings and the emails and the writing and the booking and the begging and the you know promos and all the bullshit that goes along with right. it. In the last few years, there's been this this kind of massive overhaul of the 
of the forgive me late night landscape with stop old, saying no it's last time last There's time no last time last time but the whole old guard that was there when you showed up is now gone and you and conan are now the old guys we are the old guard and i, yeah. I just wonder i mean so okay what do you make of that and and of the of the new wave behind you well that's how it goes you know i mean you want to be the old guard that's the i mean that's the goal right yeah right you, you want around yeah. you want to be on the air until you don't want to be on the air anymore right and I, I'm fine with it. I don't have a problem with it. Do I you feel like- call these guys? Like, all right, Trevor Noah is now a late night host. Do you, do you reach out to these guys in the way that I guess Letterman did to you at one point? Sometimes. It depends on the person. And sometimes I just run into them. And yeah. sometimes I know them beforehand. If I know them, I, I will definitely. Usually I'll send a gift or a note or something like that. And I mean, if anybody ever wants to call me and ask me questions, I'm always happy to to share what I've learned with them because I don't wish what I went through at the beginning <laughs> and what a lot of people went through, uh, what Conan went through at the beginning. And I don't wish that on anyone. I really don't. It's, it's especially now when you're, there's so much criticism, True, but you learn things, you figure <laughs> things out and you learn things from other people. You know, I learned, I learned from Don Rickles. I learned a lot from Billy Crystal when when I was going to host the Oscars. He was kind enough to really take me through it, and Ellen as well. And I think that's part of it. You, it's part of the deal. You have to help people and root for them and yeah, do whatever you can. Last one. What are the most important things that you know now that you wish you'd known when you were starting out at that rough early period? And then also, how far into the future do you see yourself continuing to host Jimmy Kim alive. Are you going to be Dave or Johnny who were, I guess, in their well into their 60s, if not 70s? And Johnny's, I don't know what Johnny was, but what you wish you'd known and where you see this going. I wish I'd known that it was all going to be okay and that it was going to work out because there was a lot of pressure on me, not just as a performer, but as the employer of almost all of my friends and many members of my family. And so, and that's a lot of pressure. There were times where I hoped the show would be canceled because <laughs> then it wouldn't have been on me, you know, and it was relentless. It was, you know, the show was on from 9 to 10 p.m. every night, Monday through Friday. I was getting to work at 9 o'clock in the morning and it just just kept going. And I was in a, a windowless office, so it seemed like I was going to die there. So <laughs> that's what I wish I knew. Uh, I would have been much more relaxed if I'd known that it was a long tunnel. As far as how long I'll do it, you know, I'm under contract through 2020. And when I feel like I'm repeating myself too much, I mean, you always repeat yourself to a certain extent. But I guess when I feel like I don't have anything more to offer this particular genre of television, then I'll, I'll stop doing it because I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. And so I don't think you should keep doing something just because no one quits this job, right, you know, right. but at a certain point I'll stop doing it. In fact, I'm going to stop right now. Yeah, no, you do a terrific <laughs> job. And I thank you so much for doing this. It's thank weird you. that you do these with your shirt off. I don't, <laughs> do you ever like make reference to that? I, I was inspired by, you know, the man. I actually would like to know where the trampoline is here. I we do have a trampoline. Do you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> every time right my now. daughter gets on it, a little piece of me dies. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.